Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast that seeks to recover authentic Christianity and live it out today. Today we'll begin to consider interpretive options for the first chapter of Genesis. We'll see the three main groupings of theories, including those that propose a young earth of only thousands of years, those that see the earth as old, such as billions of years, and those that are compatible with either. After introducing the main options, Will Barlow goes on to explore young earth creationism. He presents the advantages and disadvantages of this approach. Lastly, he shows why the appearance of age hypothesis fails to convince him. Here now is episode 460, part 3 of our Scripture and Science class, Reading Genesis, chapter 1, with Will Barlow. Before we get into Genesis and different ways of viewing Genesis, we're going to start by looking back at what we've talked about to this point. What have we seen so far? Well, in the last session, in session two, we saw that Genesis was written to a group of ancient people coming out of slavery. They were coming out of slavery. There was hundreds of years of abuse and trauma there. Uh, They'd been surrounded by idols and idolatry. And all they had was this faint recollection of an oral tradition passed down to them by their forefathers. And so that leads us to the second point, which is the questions that they were asking of the text are different than the questions that we ask of the text. And this is absolutely vital for us as we move forward in this class. So as we approach the text of Genesis 1 and consider the eight or so options that we will consider in this class, there are several big questions that we can ask about the text and how we view the text that will separate these readings from one another. Okay, so I'm trying to give you a couple ways of thinking about how to separate these readings from one another. So here's one question. Does Genesis 1 begin with a continuous narrative or is there an initial creation in verse 1 followed by a recreation or a reconstitution? One of our theories called gap theory says the latter, says it In many versions of gap theory, there is a complete creation in Genesis 1-1, then there's a gap or a period of time, followed by a destruction, and then the need for a recreation or a reconstitution. Most other views uh, take the former, that that this is just a continuous one-time creation account, that whenever it says in the beginning God created, the earth was without form and void. It's just moving on from there. It just keeps moving. This is all one time frame that, that we're working with here. So this is one of our big questions that we have to answer. Is there an initial creation and then a recreation? Or is it a continuous narrative? Another big question as we approach Genesis chapter 1 is, how do we read the word day? This is going to be a, a really important one differentiating the views. Is a day, as defined in Genesis chapter 1, a 24-hour period of time? Or is it something else? In young earth creationism and in most versions of gap theory, uh, the word day is a literal 24-hour period. So a day is what we would call a day, 24 hours. 
most other views don't either they don't require a day to be a specific amount of time or some say it's a much longer period of time uh, we're going to look at a view called day age where each day could be billions of years uh, there's a specific sort of modified day age view done by a jewish former jewish physicist who now uh, teaches at in jerusalem he teaches uh, jewish bible in jerusalem his name is gerald schroeder and he has sort of a relativistic approach to Genesis 1, where he says the first day is like 8 billion years, and the second day is like 4 billion years, and the third day is like 2 billion years. So as each day goes, as the universe expands, it takes less and less. Each day is less and less time. A lot of people have a lot of different views about what a day is. We have to answer that question for ourselves. Here's a mind bender. Is Genesis 1 meant to be a description of creation itself? Is it even meant to describe the actual creation event when the universe came into existence? Or is it instead meant to describe how God ascribed function to already existing systems? There's a modified gap theory and a Walton's temple theory that we're going to get into, and they both focus on Genesis 1 describing function, not creation. So that's an important distinction, an important question for us to answer as well. Now, many of the other views take Genesis 1 to be describing the literal creation event, when the universe came into existence, when the earth actually came into existence. But this is a really important question for us. Are we trying to describe the actual creation event itself? Is God ascribing function to systems that were already in place? Another important question that each of us individually has to answer is, how importantly should we weigh the scientific evidence? For example, Walton's temple theory doesn't even care about modern science, not even on his radar. Doesn't matter, because he's talking about how God is organizing things as relating to a function, and the universe is gonna be God's temple, is what he's, he's gonna be talking about, how God's setting up his temple. And so Walton's temple theory, it's a way to try to read the Bible in an ancient Near East context. It doesn't even interact with a lot of the science. It does not matter what you think about science. The mainline young earth creationist view has an alternate view of the scientific evidence. They have reasons why the speed of light is the speed of light that we observe, but it may not have always been that speed. Okay. Or carbon dating you know, with carbon dating, they might say carbon decays at this rate now, but it may not have always decayed at that rate. Okay, so they are going to have an alternate view of the scientific evidence. And then basically every other view is going to rely on the scientific evidence. Uh, they're just going to say we accept the scientific evidence, or they're going to say we accept most of the scientific evidence, except for small exclusions here and there. And so by and large, the other views rely on the scientific evidence and can handle a lot of it. I will say evolution is a big touchstone here where that's, that's like the controversial one. So when I say scientific evidence, I'm not necessarily including evolution there. A lot of Christians will reject evolution for various reasons, and we'll get into that later why uh, the scientific actual reasons why we might want to reject certain aspects of evolution. But a lot of these other views they're just gonna be okay with the scientific evidence. They're just gonna be fine with it. No problems at all. So each one of us has to make a decision about how we view science. 
how important the scientific evidence is to us. And whether we want to come to the text of Genesis 1 having some scientific commitments or not. And that's something for you to decide. That's not something for me to decide. I'm here to educate. So as we go through the many views that we're going to look at on Genesis chapter 1, I think it might be easiest to divide them this way. And this is how we're going to proceed through this class. In this session, we're going to look at young earth views. That's all we're going to have time for in this session. In the next session, we'll handle some of the old earth views. And then in the following session, we'll handle the rest of the old earth views. And then we'll handle the views that are compatible with either. So I'm going to just describe these briefly for us here. And then as we go through them later in the class, I'll go into a lot more detail about pros and cons and about um, concerns with the science, concerns with the text, things like that. When we think about young earth views, there are basically two main young earth creationist views. And these are the two we're going to talk about today in more detail later. The mainline young earth creationist view is what you would see if you go to like the Answers in Genesis website or the Institute for Creation Research website, the ICR website. And one of the big names is there is Ken Ham. Ken Ham has been I think the head of Answers in Genesis for a very long time. If you want to understand more about the Young Earth view, those are your resources. That's where you'd go to get your questions answered. I'm going to tell you, I'm going to put my cards on the table, I am not a Young Earth creationist. This is not my specialty. As a physicist, as someone who comes to the Bible having seen some of the evidence from physics, I have an Old Earth view. That's the bias I come to the text with. I come to the text with some preconceived notions about the evidence that we can see in physics and astronomy. And I don't think that we have to read the Bible in a way that, that limits my ability to hold those views about physics and astronomy. So I'm not a young earth creationist expert, would never pretend to be a young earth creationist expert. I have at times spent a lot of time on the Answers in Genesis website, and I think they have interesting resources for you to consider their perspective. The other young earth view that I can talk about is the appearance of age view. What this view is, so the mainline view, what they're going to do is they're going to, like I said, they're going to have a whole new set of scientific evidence for you to consider. How could we understand the earth being 6,000 years old at the speed of light is this, but it, you know, like I said, they're gonna have to say that it changed over time. They're gonna have to say that carbon decay has changed over time. They're gonna have to make some really challenging assertions about the assumptions behind science and the evidence behind a lot of our scientific conclusions. That's how they're gonna approach it. They're gonna whittle away at the science, okay? That's how they're gonna handle the scientific evidence. The appearance of age view basically says, we're okay with the evidence. We think that the scientific evidence just is what it is. We, we agree, the universe appears to be 13 billion years old. That's God testing us. That's their view. Their view is God's testing us and that we just need to believe what the Bible says. We need to ignore what science says when it comes to like the age of the universe. But they say, yes, we agree. The, earth, the universe looks old. The earth looks old. And the biblical precedent that they use for that is Adam. 
They said, look, Adam was created. It appears like he was created as a man, not as a baby. He had the appearance of age. So God could do whatever he wants. And I agree to a certain degree that God could do whatever he wants, but we're going to get into my objections with the appearance of age a little bit later. When we talk about old earth views, here are some of our options that we're going to talk about in this class. Uh, by far, I would say in modern times, the most popular one is this first one. It's the day age and the modified day age. Uh, two great names for us there, two resources, uh, Hugh Ross and Gerald Schroeder, who I mentioned earlier. Uh, both of these men have excellent scientific credentials, and they're also biblical experts. Uh, Hugh Ross is a Christian, Gerald Schroeder is Jewish, so they differ there, okay? But in a lot of other respects, they both are well-trained in physics specifically, and they've done a lot of writing on this issue, on relating scripture and science together. And just to give a brief description of what day age is, like I said before, day age is each day when Genesis 1 says the first day, the second day, the third day, what a day age person would say is that day could have been 2 billion years. So God talks about the formation of the stars. That could have been billions of years. God talks about the formation of the earth could have been billions of years. There's no real specific explanation that they require of the text other than a little hand waving. It could have been billions of years. Could have been millions of years. Could have been whatever the science requires. Some people are comfortable with that. I've never been particularly comfortable with it, but that's just me. That's my opinion. But I like Hugh Ross. I like Gerald Schroeder. I think they've written a lot of good stuff and I've enjoyed a lot of what they've presented before. So that's day age and modified day age. And again, the modified day age is just, um, there's a couple different modified versions of it. Uh, one version of it is, is that each day is a literal 24 hour period and that there is a gap of billions of years between each day. So that's one way of doing modified day age. Another way is, like I said, the Gerald Schroeder way of doing it, which is using a sort of relativistic model, which is as the universe is expanding and slowing down, that time is also slowing down. So like the first day was like 8 billion years, the second day is like 4 billion years, and so on and so forth. It, there's a decay there into the amount of time that each day is. So there's a couple different ways of thinking about day age and how that could work out. Uh, the next one is theistic evolution, and it's been forwarded by Francis Collins. His ministry is called BioLogos. He wrote a book called The Language of God. And for those of you who don't know who Francis Collins is, he's a world-renowned uh, biochemist. He just recently stepped down as the head of, I believe, the NIH, National Institutes of Health. Uh, for those who've been paying attention during the COVID crisis, Dr. Fauci, he has been Dr. Fauci's boss for a long time. So he's one of the high, Francis Collins has been one of the highest ranking scientists in the United States for a number of years. And he has a wholehearted commitment to the theory of evolution. And he's also a devout Christian. And his book, The Language of God, is how he reconciles those two. And so when he comes to Genesis chapter one, he, he takes a non-literal perspective of Genesis chapter one. And a lot of people like theistic evolution. Many people that have studied biology and chemistry and have studied evolution and like evolution as a theory think it explains a lot. This is a powerful way for them to read Genesis 1 and to relate that evidence together with, with the scientific evidence. 
The last one I want to mention here is the gap and the modified gap. Uh, you'll see examples of the gap in the Schofield Bible. Uh, many of us grew up, I know I personally grew up with the gap theory. That's the theory that I was taught growing up in church. I think that there is a lot of really good evidence for the gap theory. And there's also some concerns with the gap theory, just like there are concerns with, with any of these theories. An interesting historical fact about the gap theory is that right before young earth creationism came back, young earth creationism was out of vogue for a long period of time. Um, it's been in vogue now since the late 50s. Uh, there is a movement in evangelical Christianity in the late 50s, and it's sort of held sway until now as a predominant view in the evangelical community. But in the years immediately preceding young earth creationism coming back into vogue, the primary evangelical view of Genesis 1 was the gap, the gap theory. If you went to an evangelical church, this is the interpretation you would have heard. Sounds shocking because in modern times, if you go to an evangelical church, you get young earth creationism. That's what you get. But it wasn't always that way. So we'll talk about that too in this class. Now, there are views compatible with either, and I've briefly mentioned this before, that John Walton is an Old Testament scholar and his God's temple interpretation is science agnostic. It doesn't care. He doesn't care if you're an old earther or a young earther. Uh, you can accept his interpretation of Genesis chapter one, uh, not even looking at the scientific evidence. He is just trying to understand from an ancient Near East perspective how the original listeners or readers of the text have understood this text. And he doesn't care really about our scientific perspectives. I think it's compatible with really either option. Probably most people who'd be interested in this would be people who are interested in old earth creation, but you could still be young earth creationists and think that this was a pretty powerful explanation of the passage. But again, there's pros and cons to all of these, which we'll get into as we go through the class. I wanted to put sort of an all-encompassing grab bag here. Any non-literal interpretation that does not involve evolution. Um, so you'll come across different people, different sources that have different poetic readings of Genesis 1 or a non-literal reading of Genesis 1. And as long as there's no commitment scientifically to evolution or to any particular scientific theory, uh, then it could be compatible with young earth creationism too. Uh, the reason why I put uh, Francis Collins' theistic evolution, which is a non-literal interpretation of Genesis 1, on the other slide is because he has a commitment to evolution. He has to believe that it took millions and billions of years for life to evolve on this planet. So he has to believe in an old earth to get there. So, but there, there would be a way, and I think there are several examples of this, that we're not going to look at any in this class, but you'll come across them, where you'll come across them with a poetic, they're like, this is my poetic interpretation of Genesis 1. As long as they don't have a specific scientific thing that they're holding to like evolution, it could be compatible with young earth as well. So that's sort of a roadmap uh, to the views that we're going to look at in this class. We're gonna start with young earth creationism. And if you have your Bibles, we are finally, <laughs> finally gonna get into the text of Genesis 1. I know we've been, we've been waiting for this. And again, I'll be reading from the ESV. We'll read the first five verses. And it says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. Verse 4. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. 
God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. When we think about this passage in the light of what a young earth creationist would think, there are several major benefits to young earth creationism. The first one is you can read Genesis 1 without importing any other ideas. Okay, you can just come to the text. You can just read it. In the beginning, God did this. God did that. He created the heavens and the earth. Okay, evening and morning, the first day at the end of verse 5. You don't have to go anywhere else. It's all right there in the text. Then you can go to the genealogies from other parts of the Bible. You get roughly 6,000 years of history. And then the other thing is nothing in the Bible absolutely contradicts it. You know, there's no, there's no verse later in the Bible that says, oh, and by the way, I created the universe 13 billion years ago. There's no verse like that. There's nothing that absolutely contradicts it. So those are some benefits as we approach the text. When we consider the text, here are some pros in relationship to young earth creationism. And I'm, I'm going to mention some of the downsides here in a second, and especially the downsides related from the scientific evidence. But I do want to point out that even though some of the strongest arguments against young earth creationism come from science, I will say the answers in Genesis and the Institute for Creation Research, they both have answers to basically any scientific question that you could ask. If you could have asked it, they, they're going to answer it for you. Okay. Now, the question you have to ask yourself is, is this a plausible answer or is this the best answer given the scientific evidence? And again, that's something I'm leaving for you to decide. Both Answers in Genesis and ICR do a great job of attacking science at the weakest spot. They attack science in the assumptions and they attack science by using counterexamples. And that's a powerful way of attacking science. I've talked a little bit about carbon dating and the speed of light. What someone in Answers in Genesis will say is they'll say, science has to assume that the speed of light isn't just what we observe today, but it was also the same 500 years ago, the same 1,000 years ago, the same 2,000 years ago, and so on and so forth for our calculations to work, for these assumptions to work. So this is a true statement. That is a true statement, that science is making assumptions, okay, about the world around us today and about the world that existed in the past. Science is making those assumptions. And science needs to be able to counter those arguments. And again, I've already put my cards on the table. I'm an old earth, old earth creationist. I think science has answered those questions. But again, I'm leaving that to you to decide what you believe. Here are some questions as we approach the text that I have for people who believe in young earth creationism. The first one, and we've talked about this in depth in the last session, is would the original audience have cared about the age of the earth? And I think the definitive answer as we saw before is no. So if we consider that, Interpreting the day language in Genesis 1 to be a literal 24-hour period of time and then using genealogies in the rest of the Bible to sort of fill in that 6,000 years, it seems to me that, that we might be using the text to do something that the text wasn't designed to do. So this would be a question that I would have for young earth creationists. The next question I would have is, are we sure that the genealogies are without gaps? Again, young earth creationism, they look at science, they poke holes in the science, right? 
uh, one of the things that we can do with the genealogies is there are there's major concerns with the genealogies if they're actually complete, like father, son, father, son, because the words in Hebrew are flexible. It can be grandfather or great grandfather or great, 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 great grandfather. Jesus, for example, is called the son of David and the son of Abraham. And we understand that doesn't mean he's literally the son of David, literally the son of Abraham. He's a descendant from that line and that holds that that title. Those titles hold meaning theologically. So there actually are some young earth creationists that divide over this issue. Some believe that there are gaps in genealogies. And so instead of 6,000 years old, they think that the universe is 20,000 years old. The next question we have to ask a young earth creationist is, is Genesis one about creation or function? Maybe both. You could ask, is it both? I think this is another reasonable question to ask. Given that the order of events in Genesis 1 is not perfect from a scientific perspective, we'll get into that when we talk about day age. Why should we assume that Genesis 1 is talking about creation proper, at least in a way that's scientifically relatable? It could be that this text is talking more about the function. And so if the, we're talking about function, maybe the function as it pertains to humans is 6,000 years old, but maybe the universe and the earth itself could be way older. So that's a, I think it's a powerful question to ask a young earth creationist. Now, this last one's really interesting. It really depends on a couple of your theological commitments. Um, I'm not going to push too hard on this one. If you believe that Satan or the devil exists, and if you believe that Satan or the devil is a fallen angel, then how does young earth creationism give Satan a long enough time to rebel? So again, this only affects a young earth creationist who holds the view that Satan exists and that Satan is a fallen angel. So if you don't hold those three views, this is not going to apply to you. But if you believe those three things, my question would be, how could a perfect being who's in the presence of God convince himself that he's superior to God within years of being created? I just don't think it gives you a lot of time for Satan to think, hey, I'm better than God and I can exalt myself and blah, 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 blah. And then we find him in Genesis 3 trying to trick Adam and Eve. So old earth views allow Satan more time to rebel. So those are biblical questions about young earth creationism. Now we can talk about the scientific challenges to young earth creationism. Basically, all scientists view the universe as old and the earth as old. And there's a reason for that. It's because the evidence is pretty overwhelming. And again, I have my commitments. I'm a physicist by training. I have my bias, so feel free to disregard what I'm saying if you disagree with me here. But faraway stars appear to age of the universe at 13 billion years, okay? And if we assume that the speed of light is constant, which we have every reason to believe, it's essentially constant. There's no reason why it should change over time. There you are. You've got an old earth, old universe right there, just looking at faraway light. There's a lot of other things, but that's the one I'm most familiar with. But there are many, many scientific challenges to young earth creationism. Do they have answers? Yes. Answers in Genesis has answers to all these questions. I don't find them personally satisfactory. Maybe you will. That's up to you to decide. Uh, the last view I wanted to mention here at the end of this session is the appearance of age view. And again, I wanted to point out that this view accepts the scientific evidence. Um, and this is a young earth view. And then they say, well, God made the universe appear old to test us. Now, I think that, that refuting this is pretty straightforward, but I acknowledge that I have, again, biases that come to play here. And I believe that God gave us our heads to think with. 
Again, we talked about the two books. I ascribe to the idea that God gave us this book and the book of nature, and he gave us heads to think about the world around us, the universe around us, and to play with and have fun with science. I do. That's what I believe. That's an assumption I make. If you disagree with that assumption, then you're not going to agree with my conclusion necessarily. Okay? But I believe that God gave us our heads to think with. And so if that's true, and if God did in fact create a universe 6,000 years ago and then made it appear old just to play with us or to test us, what kind of God do we end up with? And I submit to you that we end up with a deceiver God, a God who's intentionally deceptive just to test us. Now, look, I, I believe that God does at times test us. The spirit drove Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted. But God does not directly tempt us with evil. Well, I think about my time as a math teacher. When I was a math teacher, I gave my students tests. And I wanted them desperately to pass those tests, right? And I gave them everything that I possibly could for them to pass the test, including all the information that they would need to pass the test. If this is true, if this appearance of age view is correct, God did not give us enough in this Bible for us to definitively say that the universe is young in comparison with this, all this ridiculous amount of scientific evidence that suggests that the universe is old. So you're left with God being a deceiver at the end of the day, I believe, with this view. So if you're a young earth creationist, I do recommend the first young earth view over the second young earth view simply because I think you make a better claim about God and about his nature with the first young earth view. It's fine. I think science is fair game. Science can handle the abuse of you poking holes in it and challenging assumptions and so forth. But I think if we walk down the road of God deceiving us intentionally, I think that's a dangerous road to go down. I don't recommend it. This is the only view, by the way, that I will give this strong of a recommendation against. I'll be pretty fair the rest of the way, I believe. So with that, that's the end of session three. Thank you very much. Well, this brings this episode to a close. What'd you think? Come on over to restitutio.org and find episode 460, part three of our scripture and science class, reading Genesis 1. This is actually part one of a three-part series looking at all the different options, or at least all the main options, on how to read Genesis chapter 1 and how to interpret it and how it relates to science. Also, hopefully you have been checking out our follow-up discussions, and I'm putting those out each week in between the podcast episodes. So those are on YouTube. So if you want to come over to YouTube and just look up Restitutio, find our channel there, you can see that we are having unedited discussions about the episodes where I kind of grill Will a little bit and ask him some of the questions that came to mind for me while I was listening through about his approach, about some of his assumptions, and I really enjoyed those. So I've got two of those up already, and uh, in, a, in a few days, hopefully we'll have the third one up there as well, just uh, asking him questions about what we just talked about here, uh, young earth creationism. So stay tuned for that. Hopefully we'll have that out in the next few days. And if you haven't yet, go check out the follow-up episodes. Also, I wanted to invite you to our Kingdom Fest, which is happening at my home church here in New York, coming up on September 23rd. This is a great time where lots of people come into town from all over, from all over, and we gather for a weekend of celebration. Our theme this year is Joyful in the Lord. We're going to have 
a number of speakers, certainly myself and my father, Vince, but also Victor Gluckin, Jacob Rohr, Susie DiCecco, and David Hutchings. And we're going to be focusing on joy, asking the question, how can you retain your joy in the midst of the confusion, disappointments, and frustrations of the world we live in today? And we're going to have teachings that bring attention to joy in our salvation, joy in serving, joy in trials, joy in doing God's will, joy in hope, and joy in God's presence. Would love to see you there if you can make it. Come on over to LHIM, that stands for Living Hope International Ministries.org, and you'll find right on the homepage there we've got a little link that says Joyful in the Lord Kingdom Fest 2022, September 23rd to the 25th, and we've got registration up for that. Registration covers the, the cost of the facilities and the tent we rent and all your meals. Housing is on your own. You can stay with somebody local or stay at a hotel. We'd love to see you at this event. It's a great time. Really for people of all ages. We've got a lot of single folks that come to this event. A lot of uh, older folks. A lot of little kids. We've got a full kids program running. If you do have kids, please bring them. Uh, we're actually bringing in a lady who does balloon animals, and she's supposed to be a professional at this, and we'll see uh, what kind of stuff she comes up with. I think that'll be that'll be great. There's sports if you're a sporty type. There's lots of hangout time, and we usually have an ice cream social on Saturday, so if you just like ice cream, there's another reason to come. But uh, hey, if you would like to come to Kingdom Fest, please register in the next couple of days. I think on September 10th, the price is going to go up a little bit. So if you are interested, come over to LHIM.org and join us for a weekend of joyful celebration. And just reach out to me if you have any questions about travel, arrangements, whatever. would love to help you get what you need so that you could come and participate. Whether you've come before or this will be your first time, whether you live in New York or you'll be traveling in from outside, would love to see you there. Well, that's it for me for today. Thanks for tuning in. If you'd like to support Restitutio, you can do that at our website, restitutio.org, where you can also find articles and ebooks, even. If you haven't uh, signed up for the email yet, you sign up for the email, you get two free ebooks. How's that for a deal? Uh, Habits of a Discipleship and Cultural Currents. So take a look at that. We'll catch you next week. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear.